Well, good morning. We are moving along in our Daniel series, and we've come to chapter 6 today. So open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read this whole story together just really quickly by way of context. If you remember, remember from last week where we finished up chapter 5, Belshazzar the Chaldean, at the very end, the handwriting was on the wall. It was too late, and boom, the Medo-Persian Empire comes in. Darius the king comes in, takes over, wipes them out. So now Israel in exile. They're now under the Medo-Persian Empire, still in exile. And uh, as we start this chapter, important to note is that at the end of this chapter, we're basically coming to the end of the narrative part of the book of Daniel. So we're coming to the end of the part of the storytelling. And what's going to happen is at chapter 7, that we're going to pick up on after the Easter season, uh, chapter 7 is going to take a pivot, come back around, and tell us about some visions and some prophecies uh, that Daniel had during his time in exile. But chapter 6, this is coming to the end, coming to the end of Daniel's life, coming to the end of Israel's time uh, in exile. And we're going to read a story, Daniel in the lion's den. It's probably familiar to you, uh, but we're going to read the whole thing. So let's go. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any God or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said, Before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. 
Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives... And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Amen. Well, this is a familiar story to most of us, even those who maybe didn't grow up in church. You've probably heard of the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, It might be familiar to you through some uh, cartoon animated cucumbers, like it is for me, VeggieTales. So good. But I want to suggest that it is easy, even though the story is very familiar, it is easy to misplace the emphasis and to teach some things that aren't necessarily what the scripture is teaching. What I mean by that is... I'm thinking of a youth talk that I heard ages ago, and the point was, be the hero of faith that God is calling you to be. Step up and be a hero, figure out what the lions are in your life, and face them with courageous faith. Slay the lions. And the thing is, it's easy to get us jacked up about being a hero of faith, just being a hero in general. If you don't believe me, I can prove it. Any man watching this right now who has ever seen the movie Braveheart or Gladiator instantly thinks that he's a warrior. He wants to fight. He's looking around. He's like, give me some lions. Give me some gladiators. There's the cat. Let me fight the cat. He wants to be a warrior. He wants to be a hero. Every single man. If that's not you, you're lying. It's so easy to get us jacked up to be a hero. The problem is that, well, for one, 
the English are not trying to take our freedom right now. And we don't, we're not a gladiator. The point is not that we're a hero. It's easy to get us jacked up to be a hero. But the point is that God is the hero. We're not the hero of the story. The point is not to figure out what our lions are and face them and conquer our fears and do all that and be the hero. God doesn't call us to be the hero. God calls us to live a faithful life. And we need to remember the context of this book, the context of this story. It's written to Israel, God's people in exile, who have been in exile for over 70 years. These people are starting to lose their faith. They're starting to think, maybe this is pointless. Why are we following God? Is he even still powerful? Does he even still care? Is he still with us? Is he going to deliver us? Can he save us? And it's written to them to encourage them to keep holding on, to persevere in the faith, to not walk away from their faith, but to keep holding on faithfully, walking faithfully in the way of the Lord because he is faithful. He is living. He is active. He has not abandoned them. And that's the message to us as we live in this world, in this culture, as exiles, as wanderers, sojourners. That's the message to us is keep holding on to our faith and live a faithful life. Keep showing up. It's not about living these moments and moments and moments of heroic, bold, courageous faith. Daniel's life is a testimony to us of a man who over 70 years of exile lived and showed up faithfully. It's not about these big heroic moments. It's what one author author called a long obedience in the same direction. That's the life of following this God. And it's the stories written to us to encourage us to keep holding on to our faith, to keep walking faithfully with God. And I want to suggest that we can learn some really important things from the life of Daniel about what it means to live faithfully and live fruitfully in exile. It's like Lee talked about the first week of this series. Because at this point, what, what it's easy to forget you can see some, some paintings, some famous paintings of Daniel in the lion's den. And he's like this young 18-year-old, like jacked guy that's like sitting in the rocks just with the lions. And he's just like smoldering. He's like got the blue steel going on. But that's actually not Daniel. Daniel's been in exile for over 70 years. Daniel's in his 80s. Daniel's getting to the end. He's in his 80s. And the testimony of his life is a life lived faithfully, showing up, forged in the day-to-day grind of living in exile. And so what can we learn from Daniel? We're going to move through three quick points about things we can learn about living a fruitful and faithful life. And then we're going to see how this story ultimately actually points to God and his salvation, how he's the hero. So the first thing I want to notice here about the life of Daniel is that A faithful life is a life of excellence in service. Verse 3 tells us that this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. So what's happening is Darius is, he's new in power. He's setting up his power structure, his government. So he's got these 120 satraps. If you're wondering what a satrap is, it's kind of like a horp or a ligon. No, it's a provincial ruler. So it's kind of like a a premier, a regional ruler. And so Darius is setting all these regional rulers in place. And above them, he's got three high officials. Daniel's one of those three. 
And Daniel distinguishes himself in excellence above those high three. Darius is essentially making him the president, residing over all of the kingdom. And what we see in the life of Daniel is this pattern right from the beginning of exile, where Daniel has this spirit of excellence in him. Right from the beginning, when the, when the first king was picking out who his servants were going to be, he was looking for the most excellent, the most knowledgeable, the most wise, the most skilled. And Daniel stands out right away. He's a gifted young man. And so he's picked and he's thrown into this life of working for the government in exile, working for the foreign government. And we see this pattern where Daniel is excellent. He has his excellent spirit in his work. He shows up to work. We see it again in chapter 5 and verse 12 and 14. Daniel has an excellent spirit in him. He excels and he's given promotion and he keeps climbing the ranks, climbing the ladder. And what we can learn from this is that, think about it, guys. Daniel is ripped from his homeland. He's put into exile. He's made to work, forced to work under this foreign rule. That's his job. It wasn't his dream job. It wasn't his passion job. But he was thrust into this work and he had a choice. He could either go throw up his hands in frustration and say, this is stupid. This is pointless. This is meaningless work. I hate this. Or he could show up with a spirit and attitude of excellence. And that's what he did. He went, okay, God, this is not ideal. This isn't what I enjoy. But this is the station, the position that you have called me to. This is where you've planted me. And so if this is where you've planted me, I'm going to steward what you've given me the best that I possibly can. I'm going to work with excellence. The way that we show up to the things that God has given us to do in our lives actually matters. Time and time again, Daniel approaches his work with excellence. He is a gifted young man to begin with, but I think he grows these gifts that God's given him. He sees his position. He sees where God has planted him as an opportunity for stewardship. He goes, okay, God, if this is where you've planted me, if this is work that you've called me to, then it's worth doing with excellence. I think we can learn from that. And I think we do this thing where we kind of think uh, our work can be divided and our lives can be divided into kind of sacred and secular, where if we're just showing up to a normal job that isn't a ministry job or it's not a job where we can be openly sharing our faith, that that's somehow secular and then people like Lee and Tim and Andy have, have spiritual jobs. They're a little more spiritual. But what Ecclesiastes and the rest of Scripture teaches us right from Genesis is that we are made to work. And that if God has called you to a task, he's called you to a job, there's an element where that thing is sacred. Just, just in that, God's given that work to you to do. To do it with excellence. That actually matters I think Daniel had this attitude that we see in Colossians chapter 3 where, where Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Daniel had this attitude, this attitude of excellence where he was showing up, even though it probably wasn't fun, it was probably a grind. He showed up faithfully for all these years with this attitude of, I'm not working for the king. I am working for the king, but I'm not really working for the king. I'm working for my king. I'm working for the Lord. I'm working for Yahweh. And honestly, sometimes that's the only thing that's going to get you through. We're not always going to be working our dream job. We're not always going to be working our passion job. But it actually matters how we show up. And I actually, I say that from experience. Just this last season, I was 
working for a well-known clothing company. The people there are amazing. I love them. But the work wasn't fun. I was folding yoga pants for eight hours a day. Not that fun, to be honest with you. And there were days where I was, I was just sitting there just going, Lord, help me. If I have to help one more elderly woman try on yoga pants and then yell at me because they don't fit properly, I am just going to die. I need you, Lord, help me. And there's this thing that happens in our mind and in our heart when we take this posture of, I'm doing this work not for man, but for the Lord, where our heart starts to change. And that attitude is noticeable. It's powerful. It's effective. There's not this, this sacred and secular divide. All work, if God has called you to it, approach it with excellence. And the, the, the Aramaic word uh, that's used here for excellence, it has connotations of, it means of the highest things, preeminence. And so when Daniel's talked about as having a spirit of excellence, there's one point, I think in chapter five, where uh, he's said to have, uh, have the spirit of the gods in him. He has the spirit of excellence. I think it also is this thing where Daniel has this presence about him because he's a man of God. Even the people who don't understand his God or his faith, they can tell that something's different about him. There's this, this fragrance, this aroma about the way that he goes about his life and goes about his work that there's something different about this guy. And I, I think this is what's captured by Paul in 2 Corinthians. He writes this. He writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So what Paul is talking about here is he's drawing on this Roman imagery where uh, when the Romans would come back from battle and they were victorious, the general of the army would lead this parade, this triumphal entry through the town. They'd walk through the streets and the trumpets would be going. There's music, there's drums, there's harps going nuts. It's music, it's, it's celebration, it's exciting. We've won the victory. And Christ is, Paul is saying, Christ is his general. Christ is our general leading us through the streets. And what would happen in these, these Roman processions, this fragrance, was people would throw down these flowers in the streets and the soldiers, the victorious soldiers would march over them and crush the flowers and they would make this fragrance, this beautiful scent that would float through the city streets and people would know by that scent the general has been victorious. And Paul's, isn't that powerful? Paul's using this imagery to say that's us in the world. That's him in the world. Christ leads us in triumphal procession Paul's saying that as I go about my everyday life, people can see that I'm following a different general. And this fragrance of the knowledge of him is spreading. People can just tell there's this, this aroma, this fragrance about his life where people know that he's about higher things. And it's worth asking, what kind, of, what kind of presence do we have in our day-to-day life? What kind of presence do we have in our work? Is it this beautiful fragrance of the knowledge of Christ I think Daniel had that throughout his entire life, 70 years. So what happens? Daniel is promoted, and then we see that instantly, like we should expect, when Daniel steps up and takes a stand for his faith and shows up faithfully day in, day out, there's opposition. We need to expect opposition when we do that. And so what happens? 
All these satraps, these high officials, these governors, they conspire against Daniel, so they team up and come up with a plan because they're jealous that Daniel's getting promoted. And so what do they do? They look for a way to get him, right? Verse four says, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But what happened? They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. We can learn that a faithful life in exile is a life of conviction and integrity. Daniel over the years would have had so many chances in his life and in his work, especially in the positions that he was given to cut corners, to treat people poorly, to even to take some kickbacks, to be corrupt, to tell some white lies, to just do these little things that probably would have helped boost him in the immediate He would have had so many chances to turn away from the way of the Lord and start drinking the Kool-Aid of the culture he was in, right? But what we see from the very beginning, right from the start, if you remember when Daniel selected as one of those those excellent young men, he chooses, I'm going to plant a flag in the ground right now. I'm going to stand by my convictions. I'm not going to take the wine of the king. I'm not going to take the food of the king. It doesn't matter to me if everybody else in the kingdom goes the way of the empire, walks that way, I'm going this way. Even if that costs me something, I will not walk the way of the empire. I'm going to walk the way of my Lord. It's not worth the immediate payoff. It's not worth the immediate pleasure to go the way of the culture because I know where that ends. See, what I think Daniel understands and what he's living out is what we see in Psalm 1. It says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. The way of the wicked eventually is blown away like chaff. But those who are rooted and grounded in the way of the Lord, their leaf does not wither. They are healthy, vibrant, fruitful. That word in the Hebrew that says he prospers, that literally means succeed as if for a purpose, right? So it's saying that the ways of the wicked, those who stand in the way uh, of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers and follow the way of the world in sin, It might look good immediately. It might look beneficial immediately, but eventually it's useless. It's getting blown away like chaff. But those who stay planted in the Lord, who meditate on and delight in the way of the Lord, it's those who prosper, those who literally succeed. And that's not saying like succeed in the way that, and prosper in the way that the world sees success and prosperity necessarily in finance, in, you know, getting everything that we want. It's success in the way that that person accomplishes the thing for which he was planted there to do. And that's what you see in Daniel's life. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't always flashy. It wasn't always amazing and powerful. But Daniel's life was fruitful. Daniel's life succeeded. Daniel succeeded in the thing that God planted him there to do. And don't don't we all want that to be true about our lives? To be fruitful in the way that we have done, we've run the race We fought the good fight. When we look back toward the end of our life, don't we want to know that we succeeded? We accomplished the things that God planted us here to do. 
It's worth asking, am I, am I rooted? Am I actually letting my roots grow deep beyond the surface down into Christ? Do I actually delight in the law of God? Do I delight in the scriptures? Do I delight in doing the will of the Lord? Am, am I actually letting the scriptures, am I actually letting the word of God and the spirit of God penetrate my heart deeply and shape me and change me? It's been really eye-opening. I think lately we've seen, it's, it's very sad. We've seen these big public figures in the Christian world falling, failing morally, big preachers, pastors, evangelists, apologists, who have these huge platforms failing morally. And what we discover is that They didn't live with integrity. They were saying one thing in public, but their life behind the scenes didn't actually line up. And I've just been thinking about how does that actually happen? How do these guys who are out there every day of the week in front of thousands preaching the gospel, talking about God, talking about sanctification and putting sin to death, how are these the guys that are falling this heavily? And I think it's because they're not actually planted. They're not actually rooted deeply in the Lord. I think at some point their affections, their delight in the Lord started to fade. And when that happens, you have to, to start trying to look for pleasure in other things. If your delight in the Lord has faded, and I think it can start so small. It's inch by inch. Our faith can be eroded if we're not actually planted in the Lord. But you see in Daniel, his life over 70 years of service, faithful. At a young age, he planted that flag. He said, these are my convictions. I don't care what anybody else does. I'm not going there. I'm going the way of the Lord. So see a life of conviction and integrity. Does the person that I project publicly match up with the person that I actually am? The person that I'm saying I am? Does my life behind the scenes, when I think nobody's looking, Does it line up? Does it match up with what I say? It's worth thinking about. And so these guys look for a way to get Daniel and they realize this is amazing. These are Daniel's enemies and they can't find anything on him. They do their, they probably hired a private investigator taking photos outside of Daniel's house in his work, going through his old files and stuff. They can't get anything on this guy. He's lived a faithful life. And they conclude that we're not going to get him No complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Oh man, that that would be our testimony. That nobody could get us on anything unless it's being faithful to our God. And so they come up with this plan, right? They conspire, they go to King Darius, they butter him up. They go, King Darius, you're you're pretty godlike. Let's make a thing here. Sign a thing, sign a, a law that says nobody can pray or petition anybody, God or man, except you for the next month. And of course, Darius goes, okay, yeah, I'll be God for a month. Why wouldn't you? Plays off of his pride. These guys get him on his pride. And so he signs this thing. And the law of the Medes and the Persians that keeps coming up, it's, it's binding. So not even the king. It's this weird, ironic thing where the king makes this, signs this law. Once it's signed, he doesn't even have the power to reverse it. So these guys are so confident that they can get Daniel on his faithfulness. They know he's not going to stop praying. They know he's not going to stop seeking the face of his God. So they go, make a law that says that you can't do that. It happens. 
And then what do you see? Verse 10, as soon as Daniel, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, there's now a law saying you can't pray, don't pray to God, to the real God, the living God. You can't do that. I love this. Immediately when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously We need to learn from Daniel that a faithful and fruitful life is a life of relentlessly seeking God. This was habit for Daniel. This wasn't a decision that he had to make spur of the moment. Okay, there's this law saying you can't pray anymore. Oh man, am I going to keep praying? This is tough. My life's at stake. Should I do this? Ah, He didn't even think about it. As soon as he knew the law had been signed, time to pray. Goes home, gets down on his knees before God, window open toward Jerusalem, and he prays. And we see that, what does Daniel do in his prayer? We see that he gives thanks, he petitions his God, and he pleads before his God. What we see here, what I think Daniel understood, uh, Robert Murray McShane uh, has this quote, and I love it, and I think Daniel lived this out. It says, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. Daniel understood that. Daniel understood that if he was going to live a faithful and a fruitful life in exile, if he was going to accomplish the things that God had placed him there to accomplish, he couldn't do it on his own. He needed God. It was only through the power and the presence of God that he would be able to do that. And he sought the face of the Lord three times a day down on his knees in humility, in desperation. I need you, Lord. I can't do this without you. There would have been so many times that that Daniel would have been desperate for help, that he would have been discouraged. Lord, when are you going to deliver us? But he had this habit set from a young age. It said, as he had done previously, this isn't a new thing. Daniel's been doing this his whole life, discipline. He had what one pastor calls holy habits. Paul understood this. Paul talked about this constantly, this need of, of knowing Christ above anything else. Paul says in Philippians, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. I think sometimes we are averse to the idea of discipline in the Christian life. I know we just did a series on spiritual disciplines and rhythms of grace. Don't need to talk too much about it, but I think there's this thing where we, sometimes we think to have discipline is to take away from grace. It's not discipline, it's grace. It's all a free gift. It's a free gift. And so we want the fruit of a faithful life. We want the things of God, the benefits of God without seeking God himself. And we, we do this thing where we think that if we just keep living our lives and keep drifting, that we'll somehow end up at this place of spiritual maturity, of a deep knowledge and a deep relationship with God. And I love what, what D.A. Carson, one of my favorite theologians, I love what he has to say about this. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. 
We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. Paul said it this way, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. No, no, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. To actually understand grace, to understand that our salvation and our new life in Christ has been given not by anything that we can do, anything that we can earn, a free gift. We've been given life that we don't deserve. How can you not then take that and go, I've been given free life. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to set habits and disciplines. This God, knowing God is the greatest thing that we can possibly do in this life. I'm going to go after it. I can't do this life without him. I don't want to do this life without him. My delight is in walking with the Lord. So I'm going to set things in place that allow me to do that because I want more of him. It's not jumping through arbitrary hoops to please God. It's I need God. I want more of God. Daniel modeled this. He lived this life day in, day out from the days of his youth, three times a day on his knees in prayer toward the God of the universe. Discipline. And I think that we, we like to think, I like to think that if this situation was happening, the thing that's happening to Daniel where there's a law that was put in place, thank the Lord that there's not so far we could get to that point. It's not that far off, I don't think, maybe. But if that was happening, if we were in Daniel's shoes, of course we'd be like him. We'd be, you know, we'd step up, we'd be bold, we'd keep praying, even if it was illegal. But this struck me, and if I can just ask a bit of a a challenging question. If you're not praying right now, you're not spending time in the presence of God right now, when there's literally nothing stopping you, what makes you think that you would do it when your life is on the line? If I'm not seeking this now, if I don't care enough to put some of the other trivial things aside in my day, in my schedule, in my life, to grow in maturity and get to know my God on a deeper level and walk with him and know his will and know his power in my life, why would I start doing it when greater things are on the line? See, I don't think that, that we actually need the threat of death. I don't think we need the threat of a lion's den to knock us off track and keep us from pursuing this, pers- persevering in this life of faith. Sometimes all we need is comfort. Sometimes all we need is this stupid device in our pocket. It keeps buzzing a hundred times a day. We just need a news feed to scroll through. We just need entertainment. We just need streaming services. That's enough. We don't need the threat of death. But Daniel had this posture of, I need more of God. If you don't think Daniel was busy, he was the president. Are you too busy to pray? Daniel was the president. You don't feel like it? Daniel probably didn't feel like it a lot of days. He's in exile. There were probably days when he felt hopeless. He felt discouraged. But he needed this. This was his life. He spent time thanking God. Petitioning God, pleading toward God. 
It's crazy how thanksgiving, taking a posture of thanksgiving in our prayer, just lifts our eyes off of ourself, doesn't it? We start thanking God for who he is, for all that he's done. Think about how hard that would have been for Daniel. Ripped out of his homeland, 70 years in captivity, working a job he probably didn't want to be working. But he's thanking God every day, three times a day, thanking God. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you that you are faithful and you are going to deliver us. And pleading before God, God, deliver our people. Take us out of this exile. I imagine he was praying for the faith of his friends. Keep their faith, Lord. They're wavering. Keep them loving you. Keep them walking with you. Are we willing to contend before God? When author Mark Sayers loves to talk about contending in prayer. When it's not easy, getting down on our knees, contending for our friends, contending for our brothers and sisters in the faith, contending for our friends who don't know Christ, who are lost, who are seeking, who need to know God, Are we on our knees contending for them? Is there intentionality or are we just drifting? This is written, this is an account given as a reminder to God's people to stay faithful, to stay in the fight. Don't walk away, stay in the fight. It's a reminder for us too in our exile in the world. Stay in the fight. Stay faithful because God is still faithful. And so they get him. They see Daniel praying. They go before the king. They remind him, didn't you sign this law, Darius? He goes, yep. They remind him of the law of the Medes and the Persians. It can't be reversed. Not even the king has the power to reverse his own thing that he set in place. And then verse 16, the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king says to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet Nothing might be changed. There's Daniel thrown into the pit, thrown into the den. And then you see at the break of day, the king, he he hasn't had dancers. He hasn't had musicians. He hasn't had food. He's been fasting all night. It's awesome. The impact that Daniel has clearly had on this king because this king doesn't want him to get eaten by lions. This king is rooting for Daniel. That's amazing. Think about the impact over his, his time working for this king that Daniel must have had on him. The king was on Daniel's side. And then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he comes near, he's, he, he cries out in anguish. He goes, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Is Daniel. Oh yeah, he has. Oh yeah, he has. Oh king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They have not harmed me. Why? because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. So Daniel, the king orders Daniel's taken up out of the lion's den. No harm was found on him because he trusted in his God. And the king commands that all those who maliciously accused Daniel, so these satraps, these high officials, and their families are thrown into the den. And some people have made the argument over the years, some liberal commentators I uh, have said that it wasn't actually anything spiritual. The reason Daniel survived, it's act- the lions weren't hungry. That's what I've actually read. The lions weren't hungry. So they just left Daniel alone. But what you see here is all of these satraps and high officials and their families thrown into the den, they are ripped to pieces by the lions before they even hit the ground. 
These lions were hungry. And that's the law of the Medes and the Persians, is that if those people who made this accusation were found to actually be guilty, the punishment would fall on them and their kin. And so they are tossed to the lions. And then King Darius writes this amazing proclamation. He goes, All my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed. And his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So the last thing we need to look at here, just in closing, is that Daniel's life teaches us to trust in the saving power of a faithful God. So Daniel was unscathed through the night by these hungry lions because God sends his angel miraculously to shut the mouths of the lions. And we can sometimes get so familiar with this story that we forget how incredible that is. The miraculous salvation delivery of God, not a scratch is found on Daniel. It's incredible. And the message to Israel and the message to us is keep holding on, keep persevering, fighting the good fight in this faith, serving your God exactly where he has planted you because he has not given up on you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's still there and he will deliver you. And that's what we're going to see as the story ends. Verse 28, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. During the reign of Cyrus the Persian, that's when Israel, God's people, are delivered. God finally delivers them. He brings them out. He's delivered them. It's taken a long time. Some of them have probably lost faith. They've probably walked away. But God has been faithful. He delivers them. And that's the message. Remain faithful to this God because he is always faithful. He saves and he delivers. And so the question that remains is, Does God always, if we have faith in him, if we believe in him, if we're believers and followers of Jesus, does he always save us from our immediate unpleasant circumstances here? When we're sick, when we're struggling, when bad things are happening, if we just have faith, if we are just, we're Christians, are we going to live a smooth life? Is God always going to intervene miraculously and deliver us? A quick scan of the rest of the Bible and of history Tell us, no, that's not true. You look at Jesus' disciples, most of them were martyred. The apostle Peter, he was hung, crucified upside down for his faith. John was beheaded. Most of them were martyred. And you see this over and over again. People slaughtered for their faith. People are actually, in the Roman Empire, Christians fed to the lions. God doesn't intervene. He doesn't save them. They're ripped apart by lions We read about in Hebrews, people who are sawed in half, pulled apart, stoned to death for their faith. And so what do we do with that? Well, it's like Lee talked about when he he taught us through chapter three, right? The fiery furnace. The promise to us who follow Christ is not that God will always deliver us from our immediate circumstances here in this life, The promise is that he will be with us through everything and that even in death, he will deliver us and save us. 
That's what this story points to. And we find out that this is actually what all the old stories in the Old Testament of God delivering his people who had faith, it's all pointing to this. And so sometimes God does not miraculously intervene in our circumstances here. And what do we do with that? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we believe that God can save. We know he has the power to save. We believe that he will save. And we cry out, we pray that he will save and deliver us. And then we say, even if he doesn't, he is still good and he is still God. And if he chooses not to save us from that situation, it is because he, in his goodness, in his sovereignty, he knows something that we do not know. And we know that he is with us and he's going to be with us the entire process, the entire step of the way, right till the end. And he's going to deliver us in death. And that that suffering, that unpleasantness that we're dealing with, that trial, it's not wasted It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory, the scripture says. And so our eyes are on eternity. Our eyes are on the salvation of the Lord. So God always saves. In Hebrews 11, we see this picture painted. The author says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All the old stories of faith, God's people being brought from Egypt, parting of the Red Sea because of their faith. Daniel the mouths of lions being shut, his rescue, his salvation, they were all pointing to the reality, the promise that was to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And that's, I love the Bible, man. It all, the whole thing points to Jesus. Even this story, Daniel lives a righteous life and he is conspired against by the authorities. He's wrongly accused. He's mistrialed and condemned to death. He's put in a pit. A stone is rolled in front of that pit. That's supposed to be his tomb. And when the morning comes, he walks out miraculously untouched and he prospers. Does that story sound familiar? Jesus lived. He's the perfect Daniel. Daniel's just a type, a shadow. Jesus lives the perfect life, sinless, blameless. Daniel was still sinful. Daniel still needed God to deliver him. God's the hero. Jesus lives this perfect life, The authorities conspire against him, wrongly accuse him, crucify him on the cross, put him in the tomb, roll a stone in front of it. But by the grace of God, the power of God, he walks out of that tomb. He's defeated death. That's what all of these old stories of faith, all of the Bible are pointing to. The culmination of God's salvation is in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. He defeated death so that even in death, which all of us will face, if our faith and our trust is in him, the God who delivers, he will save. Romans says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said in John I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so that's the encouragement for us today. 
As if you have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus, I just, I need to encourage you to do that today. I need to invite you to do that today. That this God that we serve, this God that we worship, he is the God who saves. We get this pagan king proclaiming this to the entire empire because he's seen the power of God. If you have seen the power of God through people, through things, through messages, through whatever, working in your life, if God is moving in your heart, it's because that's what he does. He's the God who delivers, the God who rescues, the God who saves. And I need to invite you to put your faith and your trust in him today. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to have it all figured out. You'll learn, you'll grow but this God is so good. I need to invite you to know him. I promise you there's nothing better that you could do in your life. And for us who are in exile, who are maybe struggling, who are maybe feeling discouraged, feeling hopeless, feeling tired in this day-to-day walk, do we need to wake up? Do we need to hear this message of Daniel that was to the, to the people of God and to us today in exile to stay the course The author of Hebrews also says this. Let me encourage you with this as we close. He says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Are there disciplines that you need to put in place today? Things that you need to write down, you're going to start doing Learn from Daniel, a life of serving, a life of conviction and integrity, a life of seeking God. Where do we need to grow in that? Where do we need to set some habits and some disciplines in place? Let me pray. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word to your people. Lord, that you are powerful, that you are mighty to save, that you do not leave your people, you do not abandon your people, God, even when it feels like the work that we're doing, the lives that we're living are not worth it, Lord. When we're tired, when we're, we're sick of it, when we're, we don't know what to do, Lord, that you have not left us, you have not abandoned us. Lord, you are the God who saves, you are the God who delivers Lord, would you strengthen those who are tired today? Would you convict the hearts of those who have been drifting today, Lord, to come back to you, to set some things in place, to relentlessly seek your face? Those of us who have been drifting into into sin, into things that we know we shouldn't be doing, Lord, call us to repentance. Lord, remind us again that you are the God who saves. Lord, would you strengthen our hearts? Would you encourage our hearts with that truth this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.